Greetings, my name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. There has been a season of about a month or so where I have given very few messages and in particular iPod messages on straight audio. But I want to begin to change that by doing possibly shorter messages from the meditations that I receive every day. This may mean that I will be doing a message possibly two or more times a week. So I want to share with the audience what I received today by the casting of Lot. Actually, not today so much as Monday. Today is Wednesday. But I certainly will touch on the passage I received today, which was Jeremiah chapter 7. But the theme passage I want to speak from is from Ephesians chapter 2. And so we will read Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in in time past he walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called on circumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And, he, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. 
Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief corner stone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Before I continue on, I do want to pray briefly. I have not prepared hardly a thing, and so I am trusting the Holy Spirit to speak because I do not know even how these passages tie together that I've received thus far since uh, well, let's say Saturday. Um, I received Ephesians chapter 2 on Monday. And I really didn't get anything on Saturday. That's because of other circumstances. So we'll begin with Ephesians chapter 2. And then I will mention that on Tuesday I received Numbers 13. And basically this is about God commanding the children of Israel to go out and spy out the land. And we're familiar, many of us, with this story if we have, are knowledgeable of the Word of God. How that ten spies were sent out and they saw that the land was very fruitful and a good land to dwell in, but also that the giants were very great and that they were in their eyes as grasshoppers before them. And remember that in these days there were men that were very tall, some of them 12 feet. There's evidence of that from the archaeological remains and so on of uh, different things that they've discovered. I won't go into that. And so 10 of the spies said we were as grasshoppers in their sight and though it's a good land, there's no way we can possess it. But the other two, Joshua and Caleb, said, we'd be well able to go in and possess the land because they were conscious of their relationship being with God, that God was with them and that he was far greater than the greatest circumstances because he was the creator of all things. And they knew their God. I'm just touching on these passages. That was yesterday. Today, Wednesday, I received Jeremiah chapter 7. And basically, this is a passage where the children of Israel are going in to worship God. And they're repeating this phrase, we are the, we are the, this is the temple of the Lord and we're God's people. But their lives are filled with unrighteousness and it's become mere performance. When God's people trust in their mere performance of routine and religious practice and worship and hold the truth and unrighteousness instead of turning with their heart to God, to cleave to the truth and to live a righteous life, then God will bring severe judgment upon them and even remove them from being his people and from representing him. And this was the case. These judgments were pronounced upon the children of God, the children of Israel, pardon me, 
in Jeremiah chapter 7 because they refused the truth. And there is a passage in that chapter where they, it states that they refused to have the truth on their lips, something to that effect, from what I recollect. But I'm going to go back to the theme passage, Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to pray first. Father God in heaven, I pray for everyone that is listening to this message, who in your foreknowledge has come to listen to this message, that you would cause them to open up to the light as a blossom would open to the light, to receive the light that their, light might, their life might enter in to fruitfulness, to destiny, to meaning, ultimate meaning, and ultimate purpose that is ever fulfilling, ever expanding in relationship with you into eternal life. And I pray also, Father God in heaven, that you would give me your words as I feel very inadequate sometimes to know possibly what I would possibly say, but I trust in your spirit to speak as the oracles of God through me. And so let it be in Jesus' holy name. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, there's the emphasis that even while we we're in a state that was at total enmity with God, where we were cut off from the life of God, that even in that state, God brought life to us. There's the emphasis in verse 2 that we walked according to the course, or you might say the principles of this world, according to other powers that were influencing our lives. The spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And we have throughout history the evidence of powers controlling people's lives. And really, if the source of reality and of life and of truth, who is God, in which there is no principle of corruption, in which there is only life that is ever enlarging and ever expanding in ultimate meaning and purpose. This is what reality is. Reality is the absence of any destructive principle of activity. It is full of life. In fact, the definition of the word truth if you look it up in various dictionaries, means that which is real. And when you look up the meaning of the word real and reality, it means basically that which is indestructible, immovable, unchangeable. And only that which has no corruption in it could possibly meet that requirement. God is love. And love is that quality that is always choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-gratification. That is out of total free will. Only that quality 
can be without corruption. Any choice that would be less implies that there's corruption within it. And this love as such has complete integrity. It is so pure that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to it. This is the holiness of God. This is the defensive aspect of the love of God. It is the foundation from which springs forth creativity without corruption that can contain unlimited life and power without corruption, without being dissipated by it or being in a state that would dissipate unlimited life and power. In other words, unlimited life and power can ever enlarge in a state of goodness and of ultimate meaning and purpose because of the state of being of who God is. For he is the ultimate perfection of love in an integrity that requires judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to his love. This is the foundation from which springs forth the expression of God's love that was ultimately manifested in his desire to bring forth a corporate bride for himself. That would be out of its own free will and total love with him. That's the ultimate purpose of God. In fact, we see in the creation of all things, male and female counterparts, that reflects this ultimate purpose and meaning of love, who God is. And why do I describe God in this way? To contrast God with the opposite, which is the anti-God state of being that controls the lives of so many multitudes, that is so destructive to their lives personally and to the world. And the wonderful thing about this love of God is it doesn't stop at holiness. Because there is the foundation of this holiness, it is from that foundation that springs forth the ultimate expression of love in wanting this corporate bride in the fact that God condescended and suffered more than you, a mere creature, could possibly imagine, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, because he loved you personally so much that he wants you to be part of that corporate bride, that he can love for eternity. Yes, when a man loves a woman, when he truly, genuinely loves a woman, he is willing to leave his father and mother and all the identities of this world in order to find that fulfillment in that woman. And likewise, God loved us so much that he paid the ultimate price to bring forth a corporate bride unto himself that his love might enlarge in that inheritance So out of the holiness of God springs forth the mercy of God. That God 
would actually absorb the judgment of all created beings upon himself who have sinned against him indirectly through the temptation of the physical realm, thus through his physical body, that he took upon himself, he absorbed judgment upon himself and outpoured his love and the outpouring of his blood on the cross through his one and only Son, Jesus Christ, so that you could be cleansed of all sin and made white as snow when you choose to repent of your independence and your rebellion and your sin against God and to commit your life to him. This love, is beyond human comprehension. This love one can never cease to marvel at when one recognizes how God is in the greatness of his purity of love or holiness and out of which transcends even the greater expression of his mercy, which involves more than just mercy. It involves his loving favor upon those who even while they were cut off from God, God brought to life. And the fact that he first loved us and reached out and revealed his love to us and his mercy to us so that we could choose to repent and receive it. And this has been the message from the very beginning of time from the time of Adam and Eve that there is one God and that this one God has provided a way in which you can be assured of receiving his mercy and forgiveness upon true repentance before him because of God in his being containing the capacity to be a perfect atoning sacrifice which means he has the power to forgive and God alone has that power to forgive. And it was innate within the being of God before the world was created, as it says in Revelations 18 and in other verses, that Jesus Christ was slain before the world was created, before the foundation of the world. He was slain. In other words, it wasn't a mere capacity within the being of God to become a perfect atoning sacrifice before the world was created. It was already a reality within the being of God, within the expression of the being of God, which is his son. Let me explain briefly to those from a totally foreign background that we do not believe in three gods. There is only one God, but this one God, in order to be truly almighty, to truly be God, must be able to govern the three ultimate aspects of existence which are beyond time and space in his creation or in time and space and filling all space. God as the Father governs beyond time and space. The word Father means originator and one who had experience through time. The understanding of God of the, and government as the Father is the understanding of God as the originator and is the one that is beyond time and space and that governs beyond time and space, seeing the end from the beginning in creation, governing over creation. 
The word son means expression. The son is the exact and full expression of God into the time and space realm in order to govern in that realm. For God to be able to govern beyond time and space as the Father, he must be in personage within that realm or in conscious identity of intelligence. For God to govern within the time and space realm, he must also be in a conscious identity of intelligence or in personage. And so the word son means expression. And Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1.3 is plainly described as the full expression of the Father. He is the one. He is the aspect of the one true God and personage that governs within the time and space realm. And then we have the Holy Spirit that fills all things and is omnipresent and omnipresent and is able to become creative anywhere and at everywhere at the same time. He is able to appear in personage everywhere at the same time as the Father and as the Son in omnipresence. And so there is only one God in three personages in order to be truly almighty and govern beyond time and space, in time and space, and filling all space. And in his Son, he came to this world and outpoured his love in his blood and in his broken body in the center of time, in the center of history, revealed to man so that he could be reconciled to God. In the holiness of God, we see the ultimate representation of the negative symbol in mathematics and electricity, which represents foundation and the cutting off of all that is corrupt. In the plus symbol, we see the ultimate positive in electricity and mathematics, which represents the cross, which represents ultimate meaning and ultimate destiny because of the atoning sacrifice of God. In fact, even the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's in a symbolic language that goes back 1500 BC and, and further way back to 2000 and beyond, is the exact symbol of the cross. So this symbol has been around from the very beginning of time. And it is the last symbol in the alphabet of the Hebrew way back 2000 BC. And so we have this wonderful vision that is, we can all enter into. The Word of God says, without a vision, the people perish. Christ, it says concerning Christ too, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And when we have the same vision of the joy that is set before us, that we can have a relationship that is intimate and personal with our Creator and that is also involved in being part of His corporate family in heaven, His corporate bride, we have motivation that is pure. But in this verse in Ephesians chapter 1, we see the opposite. We see people being controlled by the powers of supernatural powers of darkness. Now I've recently been doing 
some reading and studying that goes back to the ancient discoveries right back to the first city after the time of the flood and I can't go into it in detail here I'm just going to mention this briefly to give an understanding a little more about what is described here as the course of this world or the principles of this world and of the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience oh, there's no time in this message to get into detail on this so I'm going to give a brief sketch of it. I found when I was reading from some well-learned archaeologists and the things that have been discovered in the multitudes of clay tablets that have been dug up, that the first city after the flood, Arudu, it's also got another name, um, was established by the father of Ham. Now, pardon me, not the father of Ham, my mistake. There was Ham, and then there was the son of Ham, and you go a little down and you got Nimrod, but there's a thousand years approximately from the time of Noah to the time of Abraham. But this city was established by the father of Nimrod, who may have not been the actual physical father of Nimrod, as there's quite a bit of evidence that he only was fathered by Nimrod, an indication that this particular person may have come forth from a fallen angel that had relationships with a woman. Nimrod was known to be 11 cubics. That would be probably around 16 or 17 feet tall. He was a very powerful person. He is described in many of these clay tablets, his height. There's images of his height holding a lion. It's just like a little thing in his arm. He was known to be very wise and very powerful and very intelligent. And there was very few people that were able to come close to his stature physically. And Nimrod in the writings of the clay tablets makes it clear that he's going to take vengeance on God for causing the worldwide flood. Now before Nimrod came on the scene there was his father and in the clay tablets it describes how he had a dream of a snake entering his son and his son killing him and so his father really didn't want he was fearful of Nimrod and didn't want much to do with him but later on, Nimrod was in a battle, and his father was on the other side, and he didn't know it was his father, and Nimrod accidentally killed his father. This is according to the writings in the clay tablets. But the belief system that began to be set up way back then, in this first city, and maybe even earlier, the, the father did not establish the city as anything larger. It was more a colony at that time. But they already had the belief in this god called Anu. But he was known as a god that is distant and afar off. And before that, there's also indication in various writings and from the archaeologists that I read, a lot of evidence that the um, people that this, this first city they established was this, the same city that was established by Cain before the flood. I guess they knew after the flood from where the ark 
came to rest and so on and plotting different things where that city was. And so they rebuilt that city exactly where the city of Cain was. That's, there's some pretty good evidence on that, and I won't go into that. But there is a book which you can find at Red Moon Rising that goes into in-depth in all of these archaeological discoveries and writings of the clay tablets. But what I'm getting at is this. Cain established a city before the flood in which idolatrous worship began. Back then, it was just the one God. Now, what happened to Cain? He was offended at the holiness of God. The fact that because God's love was so pure, there was the consequences of suffering because of man's choice to rebel against the holiness of God. And so he was... He had to work by the sweat of his brow. And so because there was offense in the heart, there was alienation, and God began to be perceived as an enigma. And the next thing you know, God is beginning to be viewed as someone that is distant and afar off and that he doesn't know for sure. He knows that this God is powerful, that he seems to be the ultimate power and authority, but he's viewing God more like a dictator and, and an enigma. He's lost sight of the goodness that is behind the integrity of God's love or the holiness of God's love. And now he's viewed as someone that's demanding a dictatorial, and he's lost sight of the fact that God is good and that God can assure mercy and forgiveness. And so he brings an offering to God of the sweat of his body and of his hard work. And his offering is rejected by God. But Abel's offering is received because Abel recognizes the mercy of God and that he cannot possibly appease God with his own performance. And so Abel is accepted, but Cain is rejected. And when he's rejected, he begins to view God maybe as some creature in outer space and maybe there's other creatures just like him that are just as powerful but he begins to have a distorted view of God and so he has an idolatrous view of God in his heart a God that is demanding submission and performance but a God that is not merciful because he refused the mercy of God. He refused to humble himself and accept the mercy of God, and therefore he was rejected, and therefore he perceived that God was not merciful. And he became jealous of Abel and killed Abel. And the same battle goes on today. There are belief systems that are jealous of those that have a relationship that is genuine with God. Oh, they don't know it maybe directly in their mind, but subconsciously it is that, and in many cases, consciously it is. But what happened was they had a God called Anu that was the one God that was distant and afar off, and this God created other gods. And it's interesting that in the writing of the clay tablets, they talk about how about evolution back then, about how creatures came out of the sea and somehow the sea made, they just came together and became creatures independent of God. And so back then we have the teaching of evolution and I have the exact quotes of those translations out of the clay tablets. But if we trace 
this city of Arudu, the next city down is Ur of Chaldees, where Abraham was. And Nimrod conquered, took over that city, formed uh, worship to the god Anu, and then the god Anu had another god. And then in Ur of Chaldees, they had more gods. And you have the moon god, which is the female god of, of all of this. And this city of Ur of Chaldees, where Abraham was, now, of course, Abraham wasn't alive at this time. Uh, he comes along quite a bit later. I forget how many years right now. It might be 500 or so. But, but Ur of Chaldees had walls that were 70 feet high and 80 feet wide and that went for miles and that glistened in the sun. They were very sophisticated, had metalwork, beautiful metalwork. And this was a very big and powerful city enormous walls that just it says they glowed in the sun because of the metallic uh, stuff they had on the side of the bricks uh, very powerful civilization the first civilization the Sumerian civilization was very powerful under Nimrod but it developed an antichrist belief and everything you find in their writings is the opposite of what's in the Word of God the one that is accepted before God they have the story of a kind of an Abel and a Cain but the one that's accepted before God in their writings is Cain the one that brings his hard work and the one that is rejected is Abel and the snake that appears under the tree is actually the enlightening one that brings wisdom and so on. And, and so we have, we can find that this belief in the moon god goes all the way to the Babylonians. And then from the Babylonians to the Arabs, where you have the 360 gods under that rock that is known as Mecca. And the top one was the moon god, who was referred to as the god, which is when it says the god in the Arabic, it means Allah. Now what happened is eventually they, Muhammad came along and he said, you, you no longer worship these gods, but just the god that's called the god and he did also renounce the moon god eventually as well but they continued to do the same traditions of marching around the rock as they did before and doing a lot of the same things even though now they claim they have one god but if it's like what's in the heart of Cain it's not the true god because the true god is ultimately trustworthy he can assure mercy and destiny without violating the integrity of his love and anything less than that would not be ultimately trustworthy, for it would imply that there is a God that created what he cannot assure destiny to, which would mean he created what was imperfect, it was, that was without purpose, which would imply that God is imperfect. And so in this verse in Ephesians, we read, that there is this spirit that works in the children of disobedience. That it is even described as the prince of the power of the air. People are controlled by demonic influences and the doctrines of demons and the principles of this world, which is the principle of independence from God, of self-trust, of the creature believing that his mere performance can be accepted before God or that he made himself through evolution, through time and chance coming together with things. And so it's the opposite. And it has no hope in it because there is no destiny. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. And it justifies corruption. 
There's no integrity in the love. You have the two extremes. You have the extreme of a demanding God that demands submission and cannot assure mercy and destiny. Or you have the other extreme of a God that is loving and embracing of all things, but there is no integrity in the love. And so you have a counterfeit love. You cannot really know the genuine love of God without knowing the holiness of God. It is the holiness of God that requires judgment. And if we don't recognize the absolute purity of God's love and integrity to require severe judgment, and we rebel against all the suffering we see because of his holiness and refuse to recognize the greatness of his mercy because of the offense against his holiness. But when we recognize and accept the holiness of God and recognize the goodness of God that is behind that holiness, that allows God to be ultimately trustworthy, then we begin to recognize that God must be good enough to actually be able to forgive us and to provide a way of mercy. And when we read this passage in Ephesians, we continue to read in verse 3, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Our lifestyle was being controlled by mere temporal things, the desire to fulfill immediate gratification. As it says in 1 John, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. We abide forever because the principle of corruption has been undone in us by receiving the atoning work of God through his Son on the cross in Jesus Christ. We are cleansed from sin. We are forgiven and can then begin to come into conformity to the being of God, of his love. That was so great that he could give up more immediate fulfillments in order to have a corporate bride. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, verse 4, even when we were dead in sins, has made, us has made us alive together with Christ. For by grace are ye saved. Grace means unmerited, undeserved favor. In the Old Testament, the word mercy actually is the same meaning as the word grace because the understanding of mercy in the Old Testament is not just that judgment that we deserved is stopped, but that beyond that there is favor. 
There's not only forgiveness, there's blessing upon our repentance and receiving of the atoning work of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And from the time of Adam and Eve, they recognized in God as the Father. These two aspects, the integrity of His love and holiness, out of which they recognized the greatness of God's mercy to be able to have the power within His being to forgive them, which implied that He was the source of forgiveness because there was such a purity within the being of God that He could actually absorb judgment upon himself which was represented in the innocent animals that were offered which they recognized could not cleanse them because they did not represent their body and they did not represent their soul but could only represent their physical body so they knew that there was a cleansing in the physical realm through animal sacrifice but that the source of forgiveness was from God which implied that within God himself only could be a perfect atoning sacrifice. Which is why John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world before Christ came. To the point where he died on the cross. He recognized that it was within God alone, in the, his very full expression, his Son, that there could only be a perfect sacrifice that could represent the soul and spirit of man and therefore cleanse his soul and spirit as well as his body and forgive him in the whole of his being soul and spirit and body so here we have described in Ephesians that even when we were dead in sins, God made us alive together in Christ. Because he actually took the initiative to be the one that first loved us to the point of pouring out his life in his blood and his broken body on the cross. And he's raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How is that so? In the resurrection of Christ, we find our identity with him. So that we can be in fellowship in heavenly realms with Christ. In contrast to being controlled by the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. Our heavenly places are beyond the immediate realm of the air of this world, beyond the planets, beyond the galaxies, in heaven, we can experience, even while we are on this world, in this world, in communion in our soul and spirit, a fellowship at the very throne of grace. Because we have been made nigh to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ who through his flesh rent the veil. See, before we could not have our soul and spirit enter directly into heaven in communion. There was only the dwelling of the Holy Spirit with man at that time. They did know him and were born again by that dwelling of the Holy Spirit with them. And I won't go into that now. 
There's a lot of stuff on that. Nicodemus was expected to know what being born again of the Spirit was before Christ died on the cross. But now there's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not just the dwelling of the Spirit with our soul and spirit, as it says in John 14, for ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, but shall be in you. Now we have the indwelling. And so in that indwelling and communion that we experience in our soul and spirit, when we humble ourselves before God and are in utter awe of him in prayer and in humility, recognizing the greatness of his mercy and his love to us out of that mercy, we come nigh to him and we experience a communion in our being that raises us to a consciousness of being in that realm with him that is beyond all the physical realm that we see around us, including the galaxies and the stars. We are raised to be in heavenly places with Christ. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord but he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity? And believe me, when you recognize the greatness of God's mercy and love to you, you are choosing to fear God. For what is the fear of God? It is entering into a reverence of purity that allows us to ascend into the Holy of Holies. The reason it exhorts us to come with boldness to the throne of grace is because of, because of the utter awareness of our weakness and inadequacy in the light of his holiness. And it is out of that reverence that we ascend to the throne of grace. And the fear of God is the recognition and the choice of recognition from the depths of our heart and being of who God really is in reality, in his holiness and in his love, revealed in his mercy to us. It is the failure to choose to fear God and to recognize this state of being that is ultimately trustworthy, to recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy, which is a recognition that comes out of the fear of God because of recognizing the reality of God. God is reality. His name means I am that I am. In fact, the word Yahweh basically means the self-existent one. It's describing God as reality. And it is in recognizing the essence of what reality is that it is this ultimate state of being that could not be more trustworthy, which is the ultimate negative and the ultimate plus. That is the holiness of God and the mercy of God represented in the symbol of the cross. That we come to a place where the pride in our heart is broken when there is a deep turning in our heart. And it is then that we experience ascendancy into his presence through prayer, through worship, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And in this passage, it says that in the ages to come, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ. For by grace, that is unmerited favor, are you saved through faith. What in? Where does the faith come from? Faith, the word of God says, works by love. It is our perception of the love of God, which can only be in recognizing the greatness to his, of his mercy to us personally. It is out of that perception of his love that we can reach out and trust God because now we have a perception of God that is ultimately trustworthy. So we can reach out 
and trust him because we perceive that which is truly real, truly satisfying forever and ultimately trustworthy. So it's not of works. It is the recognition that our performance means nothing. Cain brought of his performance before God and it was rejected. It is out of the fear of God that we recognize our utter need and dependency upon God to do anything. As Christ said, without me ye can do nothing. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot, cannot bear fruit except it abide in the vine. And the secret of abiding is in the secret of the fear of God. And the fear of God is that choice to recognize the reality of who God the Father is from which we have the revelation of the Son. And so before Christ was revealed on the cross, they recognized in the Father, the expression of the Father was the Son. They recognized the greatness of God's holiness and the greatness of his mercy not intellectually, but from the depths of their being and a deep turning in their heart. As Christ said, every man that has been taught of the Father comes unto me, and those that came to be taught of the Father, who the Father was from the very time of Adam and Eve till now, came to recognize the expression in the Father, which is the Son. That is the expression of his love out of holiness from which issues the mercy of God in which we perceive his love and recognize that he is our source of forgiveness and cleansing. And so it was the case from the time of Adam and Eve. And so people like Enoch had such a close relationship with God that they were translated because they were truly born of the Spirit, for they knew him because he dwelt with them. No, he didn't indwell them then, but they still were brought forth in you of the Spirit of God by his dwelling with them through the cleansing of the physical body by animal sacrifices. Now, we go on in this passage and it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. God has already foreknown that we are to walk in good works. It is the natural evidence of a person that is truly born again as it says in first john he that doeth righteousness of god is of god and he that doeth not righteousness is not of god the evidence of true rebirth yes that there is a hardness that wants to love god and to love his creation not out of mere outward performance or any tendency to trust in ourselves but out of a love relationship with god and Paul the Apostle goes on, and I could preach for a long time in this passage. I've already been preaching probably for quite a long time. But in this passage, we go on. And we have, in verse 11 to 13, another description. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
they knew a genuine circumcision in their heart, which is the real important thing that God is after. The circumcision of the heart. Represented in physical circumcision, which represents the enclosement of the soul before circumcision. And that sharp knife represents the two-edged sword of the Spirit of God. In his word, coming out of his spirit. And those two edges are first the integrity of God's love, which is his holiness, out of which issues the mercy of God. And it is when we recognize that, out of a deep turning from our heart, that there is the circumcision in our heart, and the pride is broken, and the hardness is broken. And we cry out like the publican and sinner, and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And as that publican and sinner publican beat his breast and said that Christ said that man went home justified but the Pharisees that were thanking God that they fast three times a week that they do their thighs they were not because their trust was in mere performance not in a true heart relationship with God they were saying that they see when they were blind that the reason they were blind was because they were stating that they were the source of their own light by glorying in their own self-sufficiency. When God is light and only he is the source of light and of life, the light comes out of the negative and positive as represented in electricity. Even within the triunity of the one true God, there is the recognition of the beauty of the being of God and his holiness that results in the recognition of the greatness of his creativity, which is the positive aspect, out of which forms the desire of great thankfulness and the desire to express love to the point that Christ said to the Father, I want to show you how much I love you by going into a great condescension and bringing to you a corporate bride that you can inherit. And the Father said, I love you, son, so much because I see the holiness in you and the creativity issuing out of that holiness that I am willing to let you go, even though it's painful, in order that we can be enlarged in this inheritance together and you can experience the inheritance of this corporate bride. So he is our peace who is broken down. And it goes on here. And I'm not, it talks about the commonwealth of Israel. And yes, we as Gentiles are becoming part of the true Israel of God. Israel means he shall be a prince of God. We're no longer strangers. We're part of the nation of Israel that God will cause to come to the saving knowledge of himself in the last days as described in Zechariah chapter 12 where it says, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And that was a prophecy that was given about 500 or 700 years before Christ came. They shall look not upon a man, but upon me, God speaking. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, there will be a time when the nation of Israel looks upon their Messiah whom they have pierced and embraces him as their one true almighty God. 
not three gods, the one true God, the Almighty's one, whose name is Elohim, which means Almighty's plural one. That's another name for God. We go on in this passage and we read, but now in Christ Jesus, you sometimes who are far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. This is the Gentiles and the Jews coming together in unity. Now on the part of the Jews, you have the representation in this statement of those that have not come into this true circumcision of the heart. There are many Jews that have. A remnant has always come into such a relationship from the time of the beginning. And this represents those that are trusting in their self-performance like Cain and have the awareness of the holiness of God devoid of recognizing the greatness of his mercy to them. And the other side is the other aspect of the idolatrous religions that have been from the time of Cain, which is a God that is embracing immorality and all beliefs. It is devoid of any integrity, of love, any holiness. Now there was a man in church history at the beginning by the name of Marson that began to form the belief that the God in the Old Testament was a totally different God than the God in the New Testament because there tends to be more of an emphasis on the holiness of God and the severity of his judgment, not to say that it isn't in the New, because it is. For Paul the Apostle says, Therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And nowadays, in much of the church, they have lost the terror of knowing that knowing the terror of God, of knowing his holiness. And so there's a tendency to conform to the false teaching of Marson, which will embrace immorality and a false gospel of grace that ignores the holiness of God and of God's judgment so that they do not recognize the greatness of his mercy and their hearts are not circumcised. And there's counterfeit conversion that's merely a confession outwardly of rebirth that has nothing to do with genuine rebirth of the heart. Now that teaching of Marson that the God in the New Testament was a different God that didn't judge and was full of grace was a teaching that goes back to the very time of Cain because there was this teaching. In fact, in the era of Chaldees, Nimrod, in the religion they embraced where they sacrificed children to this false God, burning them in the fire and so on or whatever they did to this moon God, they also had the teaching of immorality, that you had to embrace prostitution. And I can't go into that for now in time. So you have two aspects of idolatrous religions, ones that are like, that emphasize performance and demand and submission, and they are filled with jealousy and violence against those that are like Abel, that recognize a God that is merciful as well as holy. And then those that are totally immoral and embrace many beliefs and go to polytheism very quickly and to the embrace of all things 
out of but out of a violation of the integrity of God's love so that it is totally corrupt. And these are the belief systems in the world that are of the course of this world. And they're controlled by the spiritual powers that are in the air of this world that form miracles in front of people and cause them to experience things so that they will believe the lie and buy into the lie that they choose to buy into. For God says that he will give them strong delusion in the last days to believe a lie that they might all be condemned who loved not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And it is our failure to love the truth and to embrace the truth that results in delusion and deception that leads to corruption and the breakdown of societies. Oh, it's true that this is the Sumerian cradle of civilization was very sophisticated and very powerful with beautiful cities that are walled and beautiful and all of these things and yet it was a total antichrist system that was totally anti-God but God caused it to be brought to naught when there was the confusion of tongues and you can find the writings in the clay tablets not only in the Bible that clearly describe this confusion of tongues that took place that totally destroyed the Sumerian civilization but out of that then came all of these other continued similar idolatrous belief systems and they've continued to this day and age in one way or another it's basically this man believing that he can be his own savior and independence of God either by denying God or by having a perverted view of God a perverted monotheistic idolatrous view or a polytheistic view of God and so it says here, he is our peace who hath broken down the middle wall of partition. And that is indeed the case. And that that was broken down was the two aspects of idolatrous belief. The one that is emphasizing the holiness of God without mercy and the other one that's emphasizing the mercy of God without the holiness of God such as Marson, <clears throat> embraced in many religions before him. But Christ has abolished in his flesh this enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So there can be peace between the Jew and the Gentile when they repent of their idolatrous views of God. And they can only repent when they recognize God for who he truly is in his holiness and his mercy in this ultimate negative and plus which represents the cross. And that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby. The enmity comes because of offense against the holiness of God as Cain had that forms an idolatrous monotheistic view of God that then from there degenerates into the belief of many gods. It is interesting that in the universities and all these places they'll teach that polytheism was first and that monotheism came later and yet they are ignoring the actual 
clear facts of archaeology that show so clearly the evidence is the opposite, that monotheism was first. In the Sumerian religion, first you have Anu, and then you have the other god, and then by another 500 or so years, you got over 500 gods. So in the beginning, there was only a few gods, which implies that it went in that direction. Then you have all the savage tribes around the world which were not touched by Judeo-Christian belief that describe their fall from the one true God and describe the flood in every part of the world. I don't care where you go, you'll find it. There's a book written. This was all done by anthropologists uh, in the early 1900s. I believe it might be even before 1918. I'm not sure of the exact dates. But here is the message. So Christ came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh, which were the Jews. For through him we both have access, as in verse 18, by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Oh, isn't that wonderful to know that our destiny is in heaven? And that we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. Oh, I could preach for a long time on this, but I'm already over an hour. In whom you are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. There's so much to share on these last few verses, verses 19 to 22. Oh, I would love to talk more on this. I can only share a bit. It is interesting. I was seeing Glenn Beck this uh, week, and you go, and actually last week, I believe, and there's one really tremendous meeting there where he, he s describes about, what is it, George Whitfield, who came to the United States to preach the word of God and was rejected by the churches, so he had to preach in the open fields, and the churches were so angry with him didn't want him to preach because there was 25,000 people sometimes listening to him and his voice carried to all these people. They hired people to stop him preaching and there's one incident where people climb up in the tree above him and they begin to pee and poo on him and he continues to preach and Glenn Beck said, so we need to take such a stand in this hour for the truth at any cost and begin to go out and they, they formed what's called the Black Regiment, which came out of what George Whitfield did then, where he lit all the pulpits on fire. Now they've signed an agreement, all the pastors in the States, and I believe elsewhere, 40,000 pastors, that they will go to jail if they are forced to keep laws that may be surpassed by the Supreme Court that will force them to accept homosexuality in their churches. So there will be mass disobedience if this happens. We are here to pay a price. And we don't care what the cost is because our citizenship isn't in this world. And Glenn Beck went on to say, we shouldn't be concerned about our citizenship as Americans. That's our second citizenship. Our first citizenship is in heaven. And that's what counts. Yes, we're no more strangers and foreigners. We're fellow citizens with the saints, those that are holy and are of the household of God. What God wants is for his building to be fitly framed together 
so that it becomes, as it says here in verse 22, we are builded together in such a way that we become a habitation of God through the Spirit. How do we conquer our nation from God? Here I live in Canada. How do I conquer Canada for God? I live in the Fraser Valley here. How do you and the United States conquer your country for God? The secret is in allowing the temple of God to come together without the compromise of love without integrity or of integrity without love. We are to speak the truth in love. That way we don't conform our identity to one another but in our relationship with God so that there's not the loss of individuality and yet there's the beautiful mosaic in that individuality. The tendency of man is to form a hierarchy and to put identity in their leaders more than in their relationship with God. That has been the case throughout history and when that happens a hierarchy forms and you no longer have God being able to come and inhabit himself as the head over his body because of the insensitivity of the hierarchy to God, because they allow people to put them on a pedestal over time. People get into positions of leadership that God has not raised up. Today, professionalism is in the churches. You go to an institution to get a degree, and that makes you a pastor. No, that's not the way it works. We need to recognize who God's put through the wilderness of trial and is gifted as a pastor or as an apostle and as a prophet. In order for this habitation of God through the Spirit to form, there must be, first of all, a turning back to the genuine fear of God. There must be a repentance of loving the world. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the abundance of bread, pride, and idleness. There's no reverence nowadays towards God or towards one another because we're so puffed up that we're shallow. God is calling us as his people in churches to repent of being denominational. We won't receive others that believe slightly different than us. To repent of controlling the meeting so that the Holy Spirit can't th move through each member of the body and Christ come down and begin to inhabit with his presence. We know what happened on Azusa Street. We know what happened in the Welsh Revival. That was all broken down. Each member of the body began to function as the Spirit of God moved upon them. They were free to share. It didn't negate the main leaders from sharing. But they liked to facilitate God moving through the body, confirming the word that they shared. And I have been in meetings where that has happened consistently, where people move in the gift of prophecy and they speak words not knowing what one another is going to speak and yet it all conforms to the same theme one to another and then we discover the pastor was preparing the same word. And I've seen it happen over and over again and there's very few places where that happens. And even some of those places are denominational and what's in them is a beautiful but it's a shell. It's held captive by the shell that man has put over it. But the time has come when the shock must fall off the corn and it must glow in the sun. 
And God is waiting for his bride to cast off denominationalism, to cast off control, and to repent of it. The leadership needs to start their meetings on their faces in humility before God. And so do the people. Don't worry about pre-service prayer meeting. Make your church a prayer meeting out of which will issue a true meeting with God where you're more conscious of Christ in your midst, where he can come down with his spirit and inhabit the body of Christ. So that what happened in the Welsh revival, what happened in Azusa Street, where the presence of God became so strong that the whole area was affected so that a whole nation turned back to God. They even canceled the football games in the Welsh revival. People couldn't even drink beer in the beer parlors. They fell under the presence of God in conviction. It needs to happen as never before in history because we're living in the very time when God will bring forth his corporate bride. The question is whether you will allow yourself to be part of it. This is God's strategy to conquer the nations. This is God's strategy to turn a nation from unrighteousness to a nation that will enter the kingdom of God. Or a nation of light that will come forth within a nation of darkness so that the darkness no longer is eminent but the light. May we become a habitation of God through the Spirit by calling one another to the place of humility and prayer and the fear of God that allows him to be the head over your local gathering. Repent of being a denomination and cast it off. Repent of divisions and cast them off. Let the valleys be raised up. Let those that tend to be looked up to too highly be brought down so that all flesh can see the glory of God before his coming. God bless you and thank you for listening to this message. I will continue to share the word of God.